Got a moment? Fast-changing risks affect people, businesses and economies in today's turbulent world. Perils like cybersecurity, political violence or threats to financial institutions. Listen in as Mosaic Insurance Specialists quiz fellow experts on trending industry topics. Welcome to this Mosaic Moment. Hi everyone, I'm Natalie Graham, Global Head of Claims for Mosaic Insurance and I'm joined today by Tom Philby, a friend and former colleague. Tom is a partner in the insurance and disputes team at Mills and Reeve in London and he focuses on financial lines risks. Tom and I have been speaking recently about the perception within the insurance market that once funds have been paid away to a fraudster and have been indemnified by insurers, that that's it, that those monies are gone. And the fact that the insurance industry perhaps isn't doing as much as they could to pursue recoveries. So I've invited him here today to talk about his experience. So welcome, Tom. Um, and perhaps you can just start briefly by discussing kind of the the how of recovering monies that insureds have paid to fraudsters, um, for instance, after social engineering. Absolutely. And thank you very much, Natalie. Um, the, the, there's often the perception that once funds have been paid away to fraudsters, they're gone forever and nothing much is then done. The towel's effectively thrown in. But having affected a significant number of recoveries over the years. I, I'm a little bit more optimistic than that, let's say. There's an array of legal mechanisms available for responding effectively to frauds. There's obviously the nuclear options like freezing injunctions and proprietary injunctions. But more often, successful recoveries come from a, a much more subtle and incremental approach. Um, one which I would say obtains sufficient information to then determine whether a credible and valuable opportunity for a recovery exists, and if it does, what it looks like. Uh, and in that regard, I'm a big proponent of what we call a, a Norwich Pharmacal or Banker's Trust order, um, which is effectively a court sanction mechanism that compels banks to which stolen funds have been sent to disclose full details of the identity of the recipient account holder and provides a copy of their statements of account with all recent transactions. And this level of detail and insight into the recipient account can provide a hugely informative picture as to the identity and nature of the wrongdoer and the status of the funds and whether they might have been blocked or onto where they might have been transferred and, and who else might be involved. Uh, and, and have you done this successfully, Tom? Do, do you have some examples, for example, of where you successfully recovered um, uh, monies from fraudsters? So, yeah, abs absolutely. There, there are um, m many examples, um, each one a little bit different. Um, but, for instance, uh, the disclosure in, a, in imposter fraud that I've recently dealt with revealed that the direct recipients of the misdirected funds were individuals that owned multiple properties and, and other cash assets, and also led further onto a trail of other connected persons and entities uh, from the Midlands right through to the, to the Mediterranean. And all of this provided us with numerous valuable targets to pursue and, and recover from. But, but what's also interesting is that alongside this, the disclosure also revealed that there were pockets of stolen sums going well into the six figures still held up within the banking system, even though we'd only become involved months after the initial fraud. Now, 
one would think that the interbank recoveries process, as they call it, um, would mean that these funds are returned by the banks at their own initiative after they're made aware of a fraud. But in my experience, that, that doesn't always happen. And to get the wheels turning and secure recovery um, of these blocked funds, it often takes our involvement in tracing through the layers, through to those blocked funds, identifying where they are, and then using that money trail to demonstrate to the banks our clients' entitlement to them. So, I mean, I, I work in claims and this sounds fascinating, but it also sounds complicated and um, lengthy. And I guess for many people listening, I guess one of the first things that they will ask is, how much does this cost? Um, is is there a risk that insurers will be throwing good money after bad in, in trying to pursue the recoveries in the way that, that you've outlined? There will always exist that type of risk. Fraud and recoveries are inherently speculative. But whilst I, I don't wish to sound like a secondhand car salesman, the costs of the types of in investigations and relief I've mentioned uh, are perhaps not as great as, as some might assume. And certainly over time, we've worked hard to develop streamlined processes in an attempt to keep costs down and response time swift. I have this general rule that you shouldn't spend more than 10% of the loss in, in costs unless you've made that decision to really get stuck in and, and go all the way. And I guess if we're talking about seeking disclosure orders, for instance, like the ones I've just mentioned, to get to the stage of making informed decisions, then I would say that you are, um, you, you've got a threshold loss of around 150000 below which you have to start questioning the proportionality of that investment. Okay, and, and so far we've kind of, I, I, it, we focused on social engineering, which I think usually involves the payment of what I, I'll call kind of traditional money. Um, but what about crypto? Um, the insurance market, as I'm sure you're aware, has lost huge sums of money um, in recent years in the payment of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency following ransomware events. And there is a perception that crypto is is, is untraceable. Um, but I have recently heard that um, US authorities have seized more than $30 million in crypto from hackers linked to North Korea. Um, we know that the DOJ recovered $2.3 million of the cryptocurrency paid by Colonial Pipeline. So, you know, how does that work? Uh, the position with crypto in many respects is effectively the same as with traditional currency. Um, the, the key difference is the tech that's used to trace the funds and the fact that you are dealing with, um, not with banks, but with crypto exchanges. So there have been a number of cases over the last two or three years, um, including one of my own, albeit a different jurisdiction, that have demonstrated the willingness of the courts to grant disclosure orders and freezing injunctions in respect of crypto-related fraud, just as they would do for uh, traditional currency losses. A an example of this um, is the AA and Persons Unknown case um, from 2019, I think it was, um, in which the London market insurers behind this took the pretty pioneering step of chasing down a Bitcoin ransom that they had just paid. Um, that ransom was traced through to a crypto exchange in the BVI. And 
the London insurers persuaded the English court to, to grant a freezing injunction against the, the so-called persons unknown that controlled the account to which the extorted crypto had been uh, sent and traced. So that, that's a sort of good example of this all in action. And I, I guess it's, it's probably worth clarifying, you'll note my references to um, tracing stolen or extorted crypto to exchanges. And this is because private crypto wallets to which stolen funds are usually initially sent are, as many of the assumptions um, suggest, are effectively anonymous and untraceable back to their owner. But in order to cash out your crypto back into traditional money, so pounds and dollars, you need to go to a crypto exchange, a bit like a bank or a foreign exchange desk, and convert them in traditional cash and send them to a high street bank account. And most criminals at some point after a fraud, they, they do this. And that provides the opportunity um, to start looking at a recovery. And that's because much like with banks, these exchanges are developing increasingly strict requirements in respect of KYC and proof of identity, and also details of linked bank accounts um, before you can open an account with them. So if you can get your hands on this sort of information through disclosure orders against the exchanges, then the potential recovery opportunities really do come within touching distance. And, and cost aside, um, are there any potential downsides? Um, when I, after I spoke to you and I began just kind of discussing what you and I had talked about with others, I think there were some concerns, particularly when it comes to um, ransomware, um, that, there could, that there could potentially um, be downsides. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yes. I, I mean, I think that ransomware attacks and, and recoveries um, raise their own particular issues. Um, the key one, I would say, is where the attack has involved the exfiltration of data. Um, there may exist justifiable concerns that pursuing an aggressive recovery strategy in respect of a ransom that's only just been paid um, could simply prompt retaliation on the part of the bad actors. Um, and in particular, retaliation in the form of um, disclosing the policyholders' uh, sensitive and confidential data, which, of, of course, is the, the very thing that the ransom was paid um, to avoid in the first place. Okay, so there are definitely other considerations around costs, but still, um, you know, in my view, sitting here in the claims world, these are all things that should be cons considered, and there will be cases in which it does make sense to more actively pursue um, recoveries than I think the market is doing at present. And, and on that note, um, why do you think it is that, that this isn't a route that is pursued very often in kind of the financial lines world, in other lines of business, pursuit of subrogated recoveries or other types of recoveries? It, it's very, very common and it, it really happens as a matter of course, but, but we don't seem to be seeing it so much in cyber and, and financial lines. I, I, yes, I, I think that's right. And a, a big factor is potentially simply awareness of the available opportunities and, and remedies. Um, as, as, as you've alluded to, the, the fraud losses of the, the, the type that we've been discussing tend to hit policies that fall under that banner of financial lines, um, which for the most part concerns the exposure to third-party liabilities. 
and where the claims that arise typically require a more defensive and reactive approach. And in that sort of claims environment, freezing injunctions and invasive disclosure orders are not really part of the usual toolbox. And there's probably an education piece to be had around the fact that there are these alternative legal mechanisms, processes, and supporting tech out there when, um, when you're faced with, with fraud losses. Do you think that the insur- there is more that the insurance industry can do collectively to perhaps stem the tide of the types of losses that we're talking about? Um, because each, you mentioned the 2019 case, but I'm not hearing a lot about collective action. And do you think that if the insurance industry collaborated more on these types of issues and these types of cases, um, we could start to see, for example, a decline in these types of losses? I I definitely think that's the case. And that's a um, a really good observation. It's obviously hard to measure the success of collective action. um, But I'm a strong believer that, that that sort of action can have a very material impact. Um, if, if the insurance market were to bare its teeth and uh, more routinely take action against the wrongdoers and their assets and e- even support law enforcement to achieve prosecutions, as, as we've done domestically and overseas, that could have a real impact in, I suppose, increasing the wrongdoers' perception of the risks that they're taking in these frauds and could well dampen their enthusiasm to be part of it. Absolutely, Tom. And and. Do you think that other sectors might have a role to play in any collective action as well? So I feel that there are lots of opportunities for collaboration out there. And if we seize those, then I'm really quite positive that that we can bring the fight back to the criminals. That's some real food for thought there, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening. Feel free to download, follow and share on social and recommend us to colleagues and clients. See you here next time for another Mosaic Moment.